week, it means the next week. So don't show up this Thursday, it's a week from Thursday and Friday. Uh, is the Monday, Thursday, Good Friday service, and I pray that you will, you'll join us uh, for that time. Thanks, guys. Take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And then you'll look at Psalm 22, and you're going to panic because you're like, wow, that's a long psalm. Surely he's not going to cover all of that today. And surely I am. Uh, so <laughs> it's going to be fun. I love looking at the Word of God. And really, uh, to understand this psalm, you need to look at it in the entire context. I think it'll have incredible, incredible meaning. Before I get to that, though, I want to give you a quiz. Um, some of you didn't know there'd be a test today, but there is. Um, this is a test to see if you are qualified to uh, be in a position as a, a, a manager. Anderson Consulting Worldwide um, developed this personal manager quiz that they've given all over the world to see if people are qualified to be managers. So you ready? You don't have to shout out your answers. You can either write them down, think them in your head. Um, it's really not that hard a quiz. You're going to do fine. Okay, here's the first question. How do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? How do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? No, wait, I didn't say, I said, I, when I'm saying that, I don't mean shout it out. Uh, I'm just thinking internally, otherwise we're going to have answers all over the way. Here's the answer. You open the refrigerator, put in the giraffe, and close the door. Um, <laughs> the question, thanks, thanks. The question uh, tests whether you need or you tend to do simple things in an overly complex way or complicated way. Some of you are thinking, how do I fold this giraffe? Do I have to cut it up or whatever? Some of you have gone down all roads of thinking. Question number two, how do you put an elephant into a refrigerator? Now, wait before you just think about it. Don't say anything. Did you think in yourself, you just open the door, you put in the refrigerator, you close the door? Well, that would be the wrong answer. The correct answer is you open the refrigerator, you take out the giraffe, and then you put the elephant in the refrigerator and close the door. This tests your ability to think through the repercussions of your previous answer. Okay, you guys rocking it now? Kind of getting the gist of things? Question number three. The Lion King is hosting an animal conference. All the animals attend except one. Which animal does not attend? The answer is the elephant. Why? He's still in the refrigerator. All right. One more question. How are we doing so far? One more question. There is a river you must cross, but it is used by crocodiles, and you do not have a boat. How do you manage it? The answer, the answer is you jump in the river and swim across. Well, why? Well, if you'd been listening, you know that all the animals are at the Lion King's conference. So all the crocodiles are... This last one tests whether you have listened and learned from your mistakes. Uh, Anderson Consulting has actually found that 90%, over 90, somewhere between 90 and 95% of managers don't get one right. And yet, over half preschoolers will get at least one or more of the questions right. Because 
Why? Because they don't think in a constricted way. They start to get things in a little quicker uh, way. Anderson Consulting has said that it shows that, um, you know, any preschooler could do a personal manager job. And so, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. If you're a personal manager, please don't take offense to that, um, to that thought. Today, I, I want to delve a little bit into the, to the whys of things. Many times, why is this happening, or why did this happen, or why did this occur, or that the the question of why, as well as why do we have to go through it in this way, or is there any way things can change, those kind of questions fill our hearts. And over these weeks leading into Easter, I want to take a step back and look at, hopefully by looking at the prophets of the cross, looking at some of the prophetic words that have to do with the cross, it'll, it'll help us understand where we are and what Jesus intends for us. The why questions at least will be partially answered. And I've been doing it purposefully, although I've called this series Prophets of the Cross. I'm looking at prophetic words that are not necessarily considered in the prophetic tradition. In other words, uh, last week we looked at a, a historical narrative, the book of Genesis, that as soon as man fell, that God prophesied the crushing of the enemy's head, uh, though the enemy would strike the heel of the descendants of woman, that, that ultimately a seed, a person was going to come who would crush the enemy's head. And then we looked at how Abraham, Abram, in the covenant agreement and the picture of the covenant, I believe it's a picture of the coming of the cross. So, so actually the first prophetic word about the cross comes from the mouth, so to speak, of God himself. Today I want to look at a psalm, a powerful psalm, Psalm 22. And I, I believe Psalm 22 is one of the most powerful psalms in all of prophetic. The, uh, the wisdom, as it's known, literature. It's a psalm that defies natural explanation. After I preach, after the, the word this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And in communion, Jesus brings his followers on that last supper together, and they, they, they celebrate the, the, the bread, the broken body, the cup, which represents his blood, and when Jesus is with his followers, both Luke and Paul say that Jesus basically gives them two words that go with communion. Two words. Remember me. Remember me. Remember is an all-encompassing term for Jesus. It, it, we remember what he did. We remember what he's doing. And in remembering, though it seems past tense, we are also remembering what he has promised, what is yet to come. So when we come to this time to celebrate the, the bread and the cup, this is not just some ritual that we go through on a weekly basis. It, it is a remembering. And there is something in remembering that stirs within us both hope and faith and life. And when we read this psalm this morning, I think it will stir something within us about the cross of Christ. And 
there are days like this where I just love looking at the Word of God because it is so rich, and it will help us to remember. Why do you think Jesus said to his followers, remember? I mean, why would he even need to say to them, hey, remember this? Because, here's my explanation, going back to the whys uh, of life, because we forget. We easily forget. And yet, here's Jesus saying to his followers, remember. We take things too easily for granted. On June 13, 2018, uh, it was a Wednesday evening, Kathy and I had dinner with my father. Um, it, it was a dinner like any other dinner. We'd been having my dad over every, you know, like four or five times a week to have dinner. And uh, this night seemed like any other. Dad came over, we had dinner, enjoyed our time. Dad left. I, 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 I don't know what I ate that night. I don't, know, I don't even know what we had for dinner. I can't really remember what we talked about or what was said. If I had known that that was the last dinner that I was going to have with my dad, if I'd have known that was the last time I was going to see him alive, I would have cherished it. You know, honestly, I look back at that night, and I just feel like I took it so for granted. I didn't go out of my way to do anything special. I didn't, you know, Dad came in. I remember Dad came in. I didn't even get out of my chair. You know, I did, you know, we kind of high-fived and, as we usually did, but I didn't, like, get up and hug him. I do remember hugging him as he left uh, that night. The point is this, not to be morbid, but we easily, there are important things happening every moment of our lives, and many times they pass right by us without any recognition. We don't remember, and yet Jesus, he knew. He knew what was coming in the cross the next, in the days ahead, and so he says to his followers, hey, do this in remembrance of me. A thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus ever came, David writes a psalm. And in this psalm, he... Listen, we're going to read this psalm together. And there are probably things in this psalm that happened to David, but there are so many things that we that go beyond David's experience. It, is, it defies explanation because we don't have any record of these things ever occurring to David. And when you read this psalm, you're going to be overwhelmed. You cannot help but look at this psalm and think of Jesus. So many references to it. It is so overwhelming. Let me just go ahead and give you the skeptic's view of Psalm 22. There are so many references in this psalm to things that happened to Jesus that that conspiracy theorists have looked at Psalm 22 and said, the the followers of Jesus, they wrote, they made up what happened looking back at Psalm 22. You know, for whatever theory you have in the universe, there are conspirators who believe honestly that it either didn't happen or something did happen. I read two this week, just to let you know, besides this one, which is the third. The first one was, of course, you know, there's all these theories that man never went to the moon. Did you know that? All theories that man never went to the moon. It's not a new theory. I remember sitting with my granddad 
the day of the moon landing, watching it on television, and him telling me they weren't on the moon, that they were in a desert in Arizona. I mean, he was, you know, raised in South Georgia his whole life, never really left there. The concept of going to the moon was just so far beyond him, it was more believable that an entire nation was lying by filming guys in Arizona. We're in another conspiracy. There is a whole group of people who honestly believe that Paul McCartney died in 1968 and was replaced by a doppelganger, a guy who looks just like him. And the guy that we see is not the real Paul McCartney, but is a fake. Oh, by the way, the fake is doing very well. I mean, he's, he's, he's making a killing. He's a great imitator. All I'm saying is, look, you'll find conspiracy theories. I, I believe what has happened is a thousand years before Christ comes, God gives David this song that's set to, it, in my Bible it says, a, a psalm, something like a, a psalm to the, the musician set to the doe of the morning. Does anybody know that tune, doe of the morning? It's the doe of the morning. No, I don't know what the tune is. No one does. Um, uh, of doe of the morning. But there was some song they recognized as doe of the morning. I could make it up. Uh, thanks. And, uh, but it says from David. And then it goes from there. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this psalm in his, um, his The Treasury of David commentary. He says, for plaintive expression, now remember, Spurgeon's writing 150 years ago. He's got a way with vocab that we don't really use today. But he, listen to what he says. For plaintive expressions uprising from unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory of his last tears. That, you know, the little thing that holds tears. The, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense. This is great. But as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. We should read reverently putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is this psalm. I want to read this psalm, and I, I'm going to do it by breaking it apart instead of reading it all as a whole, because I know our attention span. I know mine. I can barely hang for a couple of verses, much less 30-something. But I think in breaking it apart you will see what your Jesus did for you. Here's the first point. Jesus was abandoned. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22. And I encourage you to get your Bible out. Though I put most of the verses in the outline, just get your Bible out because you're going to want to underline some of this and make a note or two about it. Verse 1 and 2 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, right off the bat, Anyone recognize these words? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. The psalmist begins with the very words that Jesus is going to cry from the cross that can be found in Matthew 27, 46. Now, if you went to college and you took a religion 101 class, uh, from some skeptical professor who told you that 
the Gospels were written many, many years after Jesus' life and death, and they're, they're made up by his followers. They, they, they conscribe to this conspiracy theorist of his followers trying to match Jesus to Old Testament words. Uh, here's what I would, would say to you. What founder of any religion and his followers would use words like this to describe the founding of their religion? In other words, these words are so disheartening. They're so hopeless. To me, it, it, now we know they're not hopeless, you understand, but they're, they seem such that you would not have the founder of your religion uttering these words. To me, it's testimony that this is true. This is what happened because you would not make up a religion in which the leader is so weak and crying from such depths. His question, by the way, theologically, is filled with problems. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther said, God in human flesh, God, Jesus, forsaken by God? How can it be? How can God forsake? How can God in the human flesh be forsaken by God? It, it causes our minds. There's some point in here where when you start talking about the Trinity, uh, Craig was leading us into a Trinitarian kind of discussion this morning. I don't care how well you say it or what illustrations, you know, the whole ice water steam. I, I mean, I've heard them all. Uh, all the illustrations that have to do with the Trinity, at some point, they all fall apart. And yet, it's, it's there. The truth of the Godhead. Jesus is crying out in agony because for the first time in eternity, the first time in eternity, there is a broken fellowship within the Godhead. God the Father has turned his eyes. And the reason we know what has occurred theologically is that all the sins of mankind have been placed on Jesus at that moment. And, and in truth, what has happened is because God, who is holy and righteous, he's, the relationship is broken for the first time in eternity. The, the, the agony that Jesus went through, the physical agony, the, the, the torture, I don't think anything compares to the broken relationship that he had at that moment between he and Father God and the Holy Spirit. One of the things that the way this psalm is set, by the way, just to let you know, is I, I don't like to use these words, but they're the words commentators use. There is a complaint, a problem, a lament, followed by some sort of uh, word of confidence in God. So here, this is the complaint. My God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? The lament. And it's followed by some word of confidence. And here's the confidence that the psalmist goes on and says. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
then what is the trust? What's the confidence that the psalmist has in God? It's in the holiness of God. Isn't that incredible? That the very thing that makes God turn away from Christ on the cross, his holiness because of the sins of the world being placed upon him, is the very thing that the psalmist praises. He's saying, during every moment of life, you've sustained me, and you do it even now. You've sustained me. You've cr- I cry to you. I've trusted. They've trusted and were not disappointed. Your holiness indwells me. Second thing is, not only was Jesus abandoned, that relationship with God the Father, and I could talk about his abandonment by his own physical followers, his earthly followers. They also abandoned him on that day. But really, I think the first part is talking about the break in relationship with God the Father. Not only that, but he was abused. Jesus was abused. He goes on and says the psalmist, and I'm looking at it from, let me just say in case you didn't catch on, I'm looking at this from a messianic standpoint. I'm looking at it as Christ on the cross, not just the psalmist David. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Sneeze. Anybody dying from pollen these days? So, um, Okay, where was I? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The one person in all of history, I think, who, who had every right to be celebrated and worshipped and exalted is being abused, killed, crucified. Now, the people almost got it five days earlier on Palm Sunday when they celebrated Christ with him coming into into the city. We're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. But it was just a temporary deal. It was just a passing thing. They did see it, but they didn't see it. They, They saw what they wanted to see, not who Jesus really was. They, they, they put on him expectations that he w- didn't come to fulfill because, because what he did come to fulfill was so far beyond their expectations they couldn't even get it. It is incredible that he says, this is, this is the creator, son, God in human flesh saying, I am a worm. Spurgeon says about this verse, the verse is a miracle in language. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such abasement as to be not only lower than the angels, but even lower than man? What a contrast between I am and I am a worm. Insults and taunts are hurled at him. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Anybody recognize these kind of word, this kind of language? It says in Matthew, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus is being verbally abused, and I'm using it, and we'll see the physical abuse in just a minute, but he's being verbally abused. The, 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 the leaders, the elders, the teachers of the law are insulting him as he's dying in pain on a cross. It, it is incredible, the, almost the joy they're finding in the death of this man. And they're insulting him, saying, hey, he saved others, can't save himself. He said God loves him, but we don't see it. Here's the most, incre- Here's the most incredible thing to me. He's, they're saying, hey, you say I am the son of God. Think about this. The guys, let's see if I can word this right. The guys who are saying and mocking him, the leaders of the law, the elders, the ones who knew the scripture the best, what are they doing? They're actually fulfilling the prophetic word themselves by mocking him. I mean, it's incredible. They're the ones who should know. Hey, he said, you know, he's going to suffer and that he's going to get taunted. And, but they're the ones doing it. In their insults, they're actually putting the stamp of approval that this is the Messiah. Is that not incredible to you that, that God so uses their stuff that a thousand years before he proclaimed, and they're so blind that they don't even see the proclamation of God, and in truth, they're fulfilling it. I don't know if I said that very well. I I hope God's Spirit will will enlighten you. To me, it's just unbelievable how God works. God's plans will not be thwarted. His purposes cannot be cut off, even from the people who think they know the most. The complaint that Jesus gives on the cross, or gives here, the psalmist gives is, I'm being abused. I'm being verbally abused. And then here is the confidence. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Again, he's saying, these people are abusing me. I feel abandoned, but I'm going to say this. You've always been there, God. You've always been there. And Jesus, even more so, through eternity, past. We've always been together. Third point is Jesus anguished in pain. Jesus anguished in pain. Verses 11 through 18, by the way, are a longer lament. And I I, I just want to say this. I'm not going to go into the brutality of the cross. I mean, I I know uh, scholars tell us that there's really been no more painful way to die. I mean, it was designed from start to finish, not only to be an instrument of killing, but an instrument of excruciating torture as the person died. And even if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, I don't think any film, any words, anything we can do can can really fathom the, the, the physical pain that Jesus endured on our behalf. But listen to the words of 11 through 18 as... The psalmist, and I believe in in truth, the prophetic is speaking about the crucifixion. 
Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. I'm going to read the rest of it in just a second, but you may say, well, what's this about strong bulls of Bashan encircling him? Bashan was an area probably in the Golan Heights of of very fertile ground, and the bulls in that area were very strong as a result. And, and he's saying, basically, that the enemies that are coming against me are very, very strong. They, they, are, they are abusing me, and my body is being poured out like water. All my joints are out of, out of whack. My heart has turned to wax. He goes on and says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd, by the way, is like a part of an old clay pot that's just dried up and broken off. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Oh, people, can you just see the cross? Now, let me just say that this was written a thousand years before Jesus ever came. It was written probably eight to nine hundred years before the cross was even invented. In other words, there was no cross to even compare to what's being happening, what's happening in these verses. And yet, it accurately, in many ways, describes what takes place on the cross. My hands and my feet are pierced. My, my, my joints are out. My bones are out of joint. Jesus said, I thirst. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. His garments were divided. I mean, he's going through incredible suffering that the psalmist is describing that he could in no way have been able to describe. The details are so there. Let me just say this as a side point. I won't go off the page long. Many people declare that there are many roads to God. There are many ways to get to God. You know, Jesus is one of the many roads. And, and I want to say this. I probably should write things down before I say them, but I'm going to say it anyway. I am not serving a God who, if there was any other way to get to him, would do this to his son. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, what kind of Godfather would do this to his son if there was any other way to get to him? Who would, who would put his own son on a cross and die in this physical way, in this kind of torture, and go through this anguish and pain if there could have been any other way? I, I believe, to, to me, the cross is, is the ceiling point that says Jesus is the only way. Because if there had been any other, God would have done it. 
He goes on and says the psalmist, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. The psalmist, he's declaring, save me. Save me. Did God save Jesus? I believe the answer is ultimately yes, but not from death or the cross. He saved him through it. And his resulting resurrection that we will see on Easter Sunday is greater than if he had took Jesus off the cross and saved him. People ask me questions like, um, uh, I'll just throw one out there. Is there healing in the atonement? You may, well, that was a shift. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, the Bible says that by his stripes we are healed. We'll look at that in next week, as a matter of fact. Is there healing in the atonement? And my answer is this. My answer is yes. But the healing may be today. It may be tomorrow. Or maybe it's in eternity. I don't know. But there is healing in the atonement. I just don't know when. The psalmist here is crying out for a salvation to come. Rescue me. Rescue me. And I believe... That God's answer is, yes, I'll rescue you, but I'm going to rescue you in a way that's going to change all of mankind forever. I'm going to defeat death and the grave. Some people will say, my prayers, I don't feel like my prayers are being answered. And I want to say, yeah, they're all being answered in one way or another. You just think your prayers need to be answered in a specific way. You're looking at a narrow view of how you want prayers answered. And I want to encourage you to open up your heart and mind to how God wants to answer your prayers. You're praying it, but he's the one who answers. And for some of us, that answer may be days, years, eternity off. But God is answering. And I got to tell you, sometimes the answer of God is no. And that's hard for us to receive. Not in this life. All right. Where am I? Jesus anguished in pain. Final point is this. Jesus, as a result of this, is worthy of all adoration. The psalm ends with an incredible song of praise. By the way, I, I mean, did you see just in those verses how many prophetic pictures of Christ on the cross were given in this thousand year before Jesus psalm? Now listen to this song of praise. And to me, this should be our response as well. And I'm going to read 22 through the end of the chapter. Please hang in there. This is awesome language where the psalmist says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. What should our response be? I'll praise him. I'm going to declare your name. You are worthy of all praise. After everything that's just been done, the, the abandonment, the abuse, the anguish, the response should be, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to celebrate you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before 
those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Oh, people, can you see that this is a psalm of, of, of not only the coming of Christ, but the ultimate fulfillment and the return of Christ, when all the nations will bow down and declare his praise and glory. All the nations of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. What an incredible word of praise and psalm of both. I mean, it should, I just pray that in your heart something wells up and says, thank you, Jesus, for loving me enough to die on the cross for me. You know, my belief is this. If you were the only human on the planet, Christ would have still done it for you. That's how much God loved you. But he did it not just for you. He did it for us as a people after his own name. So in the assembly, in the group, we're going to praise him. We're going to celebrate him. We're going, to, we're going to exalt him. And we're going to celebrate not only what he's done, but we're going to remember him for what he has promised in his return. And that all the nations on the earth will one day come and declare he is worthy of praise. What should our response be? Let me just give it to you real quick. We, it, something, I pray that something in you has just said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I am so grateful. A heart of gratitude is in me. It should, it should drive us. Please listen to this point. I'm not going to stay on it long, but it should drive you to walk in freedom. If Jesus did this for you, why in heaven's name would you return to the garbage that he set you free from? Why? It should, I think a real view of the cross will help break sin off of our lives. If we really get a view of what Christ did for us, it will help drive us to walk in greater freedom. Not only that, it should, it should make us desire a higher level of commitment to being his disciple. I mean, this whole psalm is saying the kingdom is important. In other words, when we get a view of what Christ did on the cross and say, thank you, may I walk in freedom I shouldn't, no one should have to say to you, you should do, you, you know, point fingers and say, you should, you can't do this and you should do this. My, my thought is this, the truth of the cross by the power of the Spirit will set you free and attach you to God at a greater level. And if at some point we're backing off and saying, ah, I'd rather go back to this life of junk, or my commitment is waning, I think in some way the view of the cross has lessened in our mind and our heart. That's why Jesus said, remember me. Remember me. Do this often. And whenever you do it, remember the cross. Because it'll help you walk in freedom and it'll attach you to the purposes and plans of God 
at a greater extent. Craig and the team are going to come up right now, and we're going to sing a hymn. And the, one of the final verses of the hymn says this, Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? I, you know, we've sung this word so many times. I'm not sure if you get the context of it. The, the, the psalmist, I believe, is saying this. If I had all of nature that were at my disposal to give to God as an act to say thank you, it would be too little. Instead, he says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. We have nothing worthy to give back to him for what he's done to us. But that love, what it demands of us, is everything. Let's stand, and we're going to sing of the cross, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord. We're going to remember. And I pray, I I know there are times, you can go ahead and stand. There are times when we do this in our hearts better than others, but I pray this morning that what will happen for each and every one of us when we come and take of this bread, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, it'll cause us to give thanks and to say, I want to walk in freedom and I want to walk in a greater commitment to my God. We'll remember and we'll be changed. Let's sing of the glory of the cross.